In the end, when it's all done, that's what we're going to be able to say and want to say. All I have is Christ, and He is our life. We're going to dismiss our children for Children's Church, so we have something for first graders and younger. If you want to go out either set of doors, thank you for leading and teaching our children. There are lots of different ways we can undermine and attack Christ in Christianity, but one of the most effective ways would be to undermine and attack the apostles of Christ. And this is what's going on in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, the apostle Paul's defending himself, but not so much himself. He's defending the fact that he's an apostle of Jesus. When he writes and speaks about eternal matters, he's, he's doing so not according to his own opinion, according to his own feelings or his own emotions, but because he has been with Jesus He's been taught by Jesus, and he's been commissioned to speak the truth about Jesus. So 2 Corinthians is where we are this morning, and the Apostle Paul, I like to say, is engaged in the fight of his life, um, because it's not for him per se, it's because of the gospel. It's for our benefit, it was for the Corinthians' benefit. They were um, listening to those who claimed to be apostles, who really didn't meet the qualifications, and they were saying all sorts of things uh, that weren't true about Jesus. And they were saying all sorts of things that were not true about Paul either. But if you think about it, if they would have been successful, then they would have undermined the gospel itself, and they would have been believing something that was not saving. So 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians is where we, where we are. So if you have a Bible, you can find chapter 1. We're going to look at uh, a, a pretty big section. We'll go pretty fast. But it's in verses 12 all the way to chapter 2, verse 11, is, is one section, Paul defending his integrity. It comes in four parts, so we'll look at each of the four parts, and as we do so, um, what we see is, is a bad thing happening, they're assaulting his integrity, and the Apostle Paul spins it, if you will, uh, and he gives us, he, he, he takes opportunity to address four important matters that are true. So he's being attacked, and so in these four parts where he's attacked, he just turns the tables and finds opportunity to, to stress four important matters regarding Christ. So as you're trying to find that, I did bring up here with me something that none of you can see other than Rick on the front row, maybe. Um, but it's an um, uh, English Standard Version Scripture Journal. And so some of you have asked me about mine because I've been carrying it around. And again, no one other than Rick can see this. Um, but on one side, you've got the text of 2 Corinthians. On the other side, you just have a blank page, and it just goes that way through the book. If you're the kind of learner like I am, it's very helpful just to circle things, draw lines, uh, see connections where he says, yes, 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 I've got circle, 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 because I'm trying to follow his train of thought. Um, and so, anyway, if you would find such a thing helpful there in the bookstore, um, if you wouldn't find it helpful, don't buy one. <laughs> um, but I find it very, very helpful just to, to figure out how he's thinking. Uh, I'm not much of a visual learner, but it kind of helps me understand the, uh, the words and how they fit together in a visual way. I have to tell you, I'll, I'll make a confession. I know this isn't a Catholic church, but I'm just going to confess uh, something to you. I don't think it's a sin, but Second Corinthians has been one of those books I've been super intimidated by uh, because New Testament scholars say it might be the hardest New Testament letter, 
And uh, I've just kind of always avoided it. I love chapter 3. I love chapter 4. I love chapter 5 and 6. There's other chapters I love, but it's been the last book in the Bible I've wanted to preach. So I, I hope this isn't like sign I'm going to die soon. Um, but but this, this journal has helped me interact with it so much and reading it through and reading it through and working with it and having it work on me that now I, I've begun to love Second Corinthians. And so... God's grace is good. I'm thankful for that. So thank you for letting me confess. Um, Let's move on, okay? So there are these four matters he's going to address. We began looking at the first two last week. I'll quickly review and give you some new insights. But the first important matter that he addresses in his defense, number one, is the seriousness of the issue. The seriousness of the issue, chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. And I'll tell you right now, he's defending his apostleship because judgment day is coming. Okay? And if, if these Corinthians believe the wrong apostles and therefore the wrong thing about Christ, judgment day is not going to be good for them. And I'll tell you right now, judgment day is coming. It's not very popular to say that. But every one of us will stand before God. And will we stand there according to our own efforts, our own works? Uh, what, what will we say? What will we do? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to make it clear later in the book that you had better be believing in Jesus for your righteousness, for your acceptance, okay? And that's going to be in chapter 5. It'll be awesome. But, but judgment day is coming, and if you're going to believe false apostles who say it's Jesus and, or no Jesus, and everything will be good for you, it's going to be bad for you on judgment day. But the apostle Paul is saying, I'm a true apostle. Let me tell you the truth about Jesus so you can be ready for that day. So as they're attacking him, it gives him an opportunity to remind them of judgment day coming. Let's jump in there where it says in verse 12, For our boast, our justifiable confidence, is this, the testimony of our conscience. And he's going to go on to explain how his conscience is clear. What Jesus told him, he's been telling the Corinthians. Okay, he, he didn't doctor it up. He didn't water it down to make it easier. Some people like easier. He didn't make it harsher because some people like harsh. No, my conscience, conscience is clear. I've been telling you exactly what's true according to what Jesus said. I've been echoing Jesus. Okay, let's keep going. That we behaved in the world with simplicity, simplicity regarding the gospel, and godly sincerity, sincerity regarding the truth about Jesus, not by earthly wisdom, not natural religion, not what people were looking for, but by the grace of God, shorthand for the gospel, and supremely so toward you. So I, I, I didn't change it, I didn't water it down, didn't add to it, Again, like I said, didn't doctor it up. It's been with sincerity. It's been pure. It's been earnest. It's been genuine. What Jesus told me is what I've been giving you. Right? It's like one, one Bible teacher says, um, the preacher's job is, is to be a waiter or a waitress, or like the waiter or waitress. Your job is to get the food from the kitchen to the table without screwing it up, right? It's not your job on the way to the table to kind of doctor it up. You know, you, you make minimum wage or whatever it might be, right? My illustration's tanking, sorry. <laughs> You're not the chef, okay? That... that Paul, Paul's saying, I, I, I just brought it to the table the way it is. I, I'm legitimate. I've been telling you the legitimate truth about Jesus. Don't listen to those other guys who are somehow able to improve the gospel and make it more sellable or digestible or whatever it might be. 
Verse 13 then says, For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read or read and understand. The idea there's it's not something secret or hidden, some secret code in the Bible or some secret message that you have to have a special super-duper apostles to, to help you understand. No, it's not that. And I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us. So there's this measure of doubt. I gave it to you originally and you seem to accept it, but now you seem to be drifting somewhere else. I'm not really sure, but, but it's not been some weird, wacky, secret kind of thing and you have to buy my book to understand it. No, it's not that at all. I've been giving you the straight up, straightforward grace of God and you're flirting with the false. Don't do it, he's saying. Verse 14 then says that on the day, here we go, this is the judgment view, view that on the day of the Lord Our Lord Jesus, you will boast. It's that justifiable confidence. You will boast of us. I believe the Apostle Paul, he was right. I believe the gospel that he preached because it was the true gospel. As we will boast in you, justifiable confidence. The Apostle Paul will say, yep, I preach the gospel to them and they believe the straightforward, straight up, not doctored up or compromised gospel. That's what he's getting at. I'll suggest to you that Judgment Day is coming. So it's really important that we know who Jesus is, what He claimed, what He did. And we can hear that from Him in the Gospel accounts. We can also hear it from His faithful apostles like the Apostle Paul. And as I mentioned, I can't wait to get to chapter 3, chapter 5, where He's going to develop that reality. I like to say to people, does God require perfection? And the answer is, he absolutely does. He absolutely does. I also like to say, can people go to heaven without perfection? And that's a trick question. No one goes to heaven apart from perfection. Wages of sin is death, the Bible says in the New Testament. God is a just judge, gives people what they deserve. I dread that day if that's all I hear. God requires perfection and He provides perfection through His Son, the substitute. And He's going to get majorly in the deep end of the pool regarding that and it's awesome, great, grand truth reality that we can have the righteousness, the perfection, God uh, upholding God's standard, we can have the righteousness of Christ credited to us in our spiritual bank accounts. And so God will accept Christ's perfection on our behalf. Judgment day is coming. Don't listen to false apostles who say, you can do it if you try. Don't listen to them. Listen to the ones who boast in Christ, grace, faith in Him, because God doesn't grade on a curve. He requires absolute righteousness. He's the just judge. If He he doesn't require perfection, He's not just. He's unjust. He's unfair. Okay? Ready to move on? This is review. Okay. Number two. Another matter he's able to bring up in his de- in regarding his defense would be the sufficiency of Christ. So again, they're, they're attacking him after him. What does he do? He flips the tables and ha- has it be a, a great opportunity not to talk about how great he is and how educated he is. You're going to attack me, Paul says. Let me tell you about how great Christ is. And just know you're attacking me because of what I'm saying about him. 
Great, great text here. How about verse 15? This is 15 to 24. Because I, I was sure of this, confident of coming judgment day, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to come so you could, you could hear it again. You can hear, hear about the, the gospel of grace again, is what he's saying. 16, I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Then 17, was I vacillating? No doubt that's the accusation. Was I going back and forth? Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? Like natural, not spiritual? Do I, in an ungodly, sinful way, do I make my plans according to the flesh? Ready to say yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time? No doubt that's the accusation, right? Again, we talked about this last time. No doubt that's what they're saying. Oh, if Paul were truly connected to God, if he were spiritual like we're spiritual, if he said he was going to stop, he would stop. He wouldn't be busy changing his plans. If, if, if he heard like we hear, he wouldn't do this. He's so ungodly and so fleshly. The Apostle Paul's saying, really? And now he's going to build and talk about how great Christ is. Paul doesn't know everything, but he knows the truth about Jesus. And as I like to always say, it's so amazing how false teachers seem to know everything about everything, except they don't know what the true gospel is. That's what's happening here. There's so many things Paul doesn't know. He's not omnipotent. He's not sovereign. He's not God. He's not the fourth person of the Godhead. He's not these things. He calls himself chief of sinners. But he knows that he knows that he knows that he knows. Just like you can if you have a Bible. You know what it says. The truth about Jesus. The truth about the gospel. And that's what matters most. And so he's going to defend that now in a glorious way. I love this portion. As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. No doubt the word regarding Jesus. Let's keep going. Our word to you is this. 19. For the Son of God... Jesus Christ. And that has more theology in it than, than books can contain. Son of God, so we've got deity, Jesus, humanity, Christ, fulfillment of all the promises. He's the ultimate king who delivers and reigns and rules and provides. That's what we've been telling you all along. That's what we've been doing. Whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and T Timothy and I. So it doesn't matter who you heard from, we all say the exact same thing because we're all talking about the exact same Savior was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. 20, so grand. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Ta-da! I mean, right there after him for something, because he didn't know everything about everything, and he turns it and says, let me tell you one more time about how great Christ is. One more time. It's likely, in light of what we're going to read in chapter 3, it's likely that these apostles, at least some of them, are trying to suggest that, well, you put too much emphasis on Jesus being the fulfillment. And you put too much emphasis on Jesus being the end game, the ultimate. What we really need to do is go back to the old. And maybe we need to have an old and new covenant kind of religion. Maybe it's a little bit of what you do, a little bit of what he does. And it would be really good to put ourselves back under the old covenant. And we're going to get that in chapter 3. And Paul's saying, all of the promises, right, find their yes in Him. 
I'm not misled by emphasizing Jesus being the ultimate because that's exactly what I should be emphasizing. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. That's why I've been boasting in Him and proclaiming Him. And then 20 goes on to say, wonderfully, that is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. I want to say so many things about that, but I pretty much already did last time, so I won't. He's the final word, so we say amen at the end, right? And then, and then he, God gets the glory. And what do we do when we're false teachers? Just pretending, right? Well, it's Jesus and, let me tell you, my little spin. Who gets the glory? Well, I at least get some of it, because let me tell you my little secret. And you can't know things without knowing what I know. Oh, Pat, thank you for unlocking the key to the Scriptures for me. You are wonderful. How can I contribute to you? Well, send your money now at the bottom of the screen, right? If the amen, it's Jesus, and we say amen. Glory goes to God. But it's Jesus and glory goes to us. Okay, let's keep moving. Are we still on point? We're on point number two. We're doing okay. Verse 21, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. That's where our credibility comes from. And has anointed us. Wordplay you might not see in English. It's in Christ. And then almost it says in Christ again regarding us. Has Christed us. So in Christ means uh, in the anointed one. And then he's anointed us. So he's, he's playing off of that in the original text. Who is anointed of God? Let's put it this way. Here's what he's getting at. Who is anointed of God? Because apparently the apostle, the fake apostles, the super apostles as they called themselves were saying, we're anointed of God. And Paul's saying, you want to know who's anointed of God? The one who faithfully proclaims the truth about the ultimate anointed one who is Christ and that would be us. This is good stuff. It's really good stuff. Yes, he's defending. But he's defending for the glory of Christ where we find our ultimate hope because we're going to face judgment someday. This is the corner you want to be in. Twenty two says, And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee? 23, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth, not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Just two things there. In the context, it would be your faith in Christ, and then again, your faith in Christ. I want, and, and notice what he's doing. I wanted to come, and I wanted to come to increase your joy. Because even though he's an apostle, he's not saying, I wanted to come and lord it over you. Because you know where your true significance comes from? It's his way of reminding them the fact that you're in Christ. United to Christ by faith. By faith. So the apostle Paul knows it's even above his pay grade. 
to come there and be some ultimate authority over them. He's a great authority. He has apostolic authority, but he's recognizing and pointing out to them that he has no business lording it over them because if they're in Christ, if they have true faith, which he says two times, they're actually set. They're set. So he wants to come and point them to that great reality and continue to point them to that great reality like I want to point you to that great reality and what I want to do is not lord it over you. I want to say this is for your joy. This is, this is for your enjoyment. This is for your regardless of circumstance. Isn't Christ great? I'm going to keep trusting in him reality. So this conflict gives him opportunity to point them to Jesus, and hopefully that's do, it's doing it for us this morning. We could say, well, we don't understand. We're not in Corinth. We're not living in the first century. The Apostle Paul, we live in such different times, and all that's true. But we do need to look to the one who is our life. We do need to look to him and not be misled by so many who say it's Christ plus or no Christ at all. So let's now move on and plow some new ground here. This next one is going to be super fast. Don't blink, you might miss it. Number three, a third matter that he can address in his defense of his integrity, and that would be the true motive for his severity. The true motive for his severity, it's in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and I'll tell you right now, it's love. So he's severe. He takes the gloves off. And so he's being accused of being unkind, unloving, ungracious. What a jerk he is. If he were spirit-filled and anointed, he'd be nice. Is the gist. Let's go. How about chapter 2, verse 1? For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, and I wrote in my margin, strongly he wrote, and I wrote as I did, firmly, harshly even, strongly, boldly, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. I I wrote so strongly so that when I came, we could have sweet fellowship. So that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice, for I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. The abundant love that I have for you. I didn't speak pointedly, harshly to you because I don't love you, even though that's how it's being spun. I wrote pointedly, I wrote firmly, I wrote harshly regarding the truth about Jesus and eternal life and no hope without Him, etc. And it was through tears and it's because I actually care. Straightforward enough enough point. Do you think the Apostle Paul ever lost his temper? Do you think the Apostle Paul ever acted wrongfully toward anyone? I think we should probably say yes. Because he's the one who says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay? He's not trying to deify himself. Nor should we try to deify him. But here he is 
expressing his genuine concern. I wrote the way I wrote, by the way, as an apostle inspired. But I wrote the way I wrote and I wrote what I wrote, not because I hate you or I'm trying to snuff you out or I'm a jerk or whatever, whatever it is, because he was speaking the truth about the gospel for their benefit because judgment day is coming. He says, I, I, I did it because I love you. It's not very loving to tell someone something that's not true. It's not very loving to let someone believe something that's not true. Now, maybe we can be a jerk about it, which we shouldn't be, but while it's nice to be nice, right? He's going to speak the truth, and he's going to speak the truth actually because he loves them. And and we can learn from that. He doesn't want them to be misled. Not everything in life is serious. But your sin standing before the God who made the world and will judge you is a serious matter. And when the solution is something other than the perfect righteousness of Christ credited to you, something other than Christ as a substitute bearing the wrath of Almighty God on your behalf so that you don't have to bear it yourself, which would be fair, and that you must trust in Him and Him alone, the one who's resurrected, the one who, who's, whose sacrifice was accepted and effective, the perfect life lived, perfect atonement made. That might be pretty harsh to some of your ears. But if it's true, let's say it as good news, winsomely, but I'm also going to say if you're believing something else, I'll muster up all the harshness I can to say that that's not true. So I think we can learn a lot from the Apostle Paul, even though we're not apostles. There's an, there's an earnestness here. There's a genuineness here. Let's move on now to the fourth important matter that surfaces, and it's in verses 5 to 11. And it probably calls for a little bit of setup. Not that I'm trying to set you up. A little setup. It, at first, it, it kind of comes out of left field. It, it, it's one of those, what? It seems to be, and this is what commentators suggest, and people who've given their whole life to studying Second Corinthians. Pauline scholars or Pauline scholars, whichever one you'd like. Is it Augustine or Augustine? I don't know. People with PhD say Augustine. So um, Pauline, Pauline. Scholars suggest what, he, what he's going to do here is, is the Apostle Paul is going to defend a repentant person in the Corinthian church. Maybe the one who started all of this trouble. Maybe the one who's a church member and goes and reads some super apostles, you know, pamphlet in Corinth and starts bringing it to their Bible studies where they don't study the Bible, but they call it a Bible study, being a little facetious, okay? Whatever this, this person did was really, really bad and bad toward Paul and had ill effects toward the church. And of all people, this guy needed to be disciplined, Okay? He's either the source of this problem or certainly a contributing factor to this problem. And those who know better, who've come around, 
who, who are understanding the Apostle Paul's a true apostle, they want a pound of flesh from that guy. And, 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 and that would be the team I'd be on. Right? Needs to be disciplined, full bore, because he was promoting something that would lead people to hell. Put him out of the church. Okay? Apparently, we're going to see this person has repented. Now, sometimes we like to say, well, it doesn't matter. You, you committed such a bad crime. You're a lifer, pal. And the Apostle Paul, because he's a Christian, and Christians are forgiven people who forgive, is going to tell them, you let him back in the church. I think, I think you'll see it. I think that's what he's getting at. Don't take my word for it. Let's go for it. Okay, here we go. Verse 5. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. He's, he's using this kind of iffy wording, and he's using it carefully. With dashes, our English translators have added, because we're supposed to have this sense that he didn't cause me any pain. Ha! Huh. He actually did. He caused Paul great pain. But, but Paul's saying, oh, it wasn't really to me. Uh, it, it was more to you. And l- l- let's hash this out a little bit. So let's keep reading. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. It's fascinating. If Jesus is the yes of all the promises, and this man professes to believe in Jesus for his righteousness, I'm reading ahead into chapter 5. And he's repentant. He's no less of a Christian than the people who are still in the church. He's getting acceptance from God based upon the righteousness of Christ, just like they are. You you let them back in. Our tendency is to to not do that. Our tendency is to love forgiveness. Shown to me, but not so much shown to the people who cause trouble. And so he says, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Maybe suggesting there that that I won't question your loyalty to me. If, if 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 you forgive him, just so you know, I forgive him too. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ. That's a great way to look at it, too, when you forgive people because you've been forgiven. It's in the presence of Christ. Because not a single one of us can stand in the presence of Christ and say, I don't need to be forgiven. This all happens in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs or his schemes or his plots. Satan wants the church to be confused about forgiveness. Satan wants the church to be confused and be divided. So, so, so very interesting. 
It's not that the guy shouldn't have been put out of the church. But since he's repented, you bring him back. You bring him back and you forgive him. And if we can think in these terms, that what we do when it comes to these matters, we do in the presence of Christ, we would do a lot better job. There's something in us, all of us, on some level or another, that if somebody wrongs us, and sometimes it's worse if somebody wrongs somebody we love, that'll be it. That'll be it. Sometimes, again, a a husband is wronged, and a wife learns about how the husband is wronged, that wife does not want to let that go for anything. I'm not saying always. I'm just using it as an illustration. For anything, even once the husband's over it. And it's commendable, right? Commendable to show the love that that wife has for her husband. She's going to stand by her man, so to speak. I get it. I mean, we, we, we do this for people we love. There's, there's a loyalty factor. But when it comes to the church and it comes to forgiveness... Since, since it's, it's in Christ that we stand anyway, when someone repents, we forgive them and they're not second-class Christians because the only way anyone is a Christian ultimately is because of what Christ has done anyway. And so the Apostle Paul gives... It's a great opportunity for us to learn, great opportunity for them to learn, all in the context of I've got to defend myself. And maybe we would tend to think they would say, Paul would say to them, hey, and good job for, for kicking that guy out and holding firm. I appreciate your loyalty. I'll remember you when I'm elected to office. <laughs> no, he's not doing that. He's not doing that. We're not taking the time to go time to, go to 1 Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians would talk about church discipline. Uh, Matthew chapter 18 would talk about church discipline. There's a place for definitely dealing harshly with people. But there's also a place for restoring and forgiving, and now we're all on equal ground because we were on equal ground to begin with. So good, good to, to have us see him do this. I think the takeaway for us should be that legitimate Christian ministry in light of the apostles and the church, according to Ephesians 2, is built on the apostles and prophets, Christ being the cornerstone. So we, we want to we we see the church grow and be healthy based upon Christ the cornerstone, apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2.20, and now the church is being built upon them. A good takeaway would be if, if we proclaim Christ as our yes, if we proclaim Christ as God's yes, and we say amen to that, It's a good sign that we have a legitimate kind of ministry based upon the true apostles, not the faker apostles. Boasting in Christ, in sincerity, in simplicity, is where we want to be. And I think we can learn a lot about that even as the book unfolds and it gets into some of the greater details. Let's pray if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for an opportunity to to delve into someone's life and defense of their ministry and authenticity. It's certainly... um, something that we don't understand altogether, but we can appreciate the fact that uh, his ultimate boast is in our same Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're thankful for the way you've worked in history, that you've preserved the gospel, and that you've done so supernaturally. And we're thankful for your word. We're thankful, thankful for the Old Testament and for the New Testament. We're thankful that the ultimate yes is found in Christ. And 
my prayer this morning for us would be that to that and to him, we would say amen. And we would find ourselves uh, with that kind of disposition. May it be so today and as we go in Jesus' name, amen.